off our service with a TMT, two-minute testimony, or two-minute uh, Thanksgiving. We, we're a lot of things we call that third T. So TMT, Brent uh, is going to come and share a little bit about Luke's society. So Brent and his wife are a part of our church, and he's going to share a little bit about Luke's society this morning. So I'll hand the mic over, and you can share. Thanks, John. So the Luke Society is an international Christian medical organization that's right here in Sioux Falls. And I have a few slides uh, with some questions that I think will help us understand what the Luke Society is and what we do a little better this morning. So first, uh, what is the Luke Society? Well, it's an organization that supports doctors and nurses working all over the world in underserved areas in their own countries. What type of support do we provide? Financial assistance, prayer, mentoring, encouragement. What makes us unique from other organizations? Well, we don't send doctors or work groups or missionaries to these countries. Rather, we support and encourage and partner with the individuals that are already there working in their own countries. You know, oftentimes I'll go on a trip and people will ask me, well, how many patients did you see? And the answer is, I didn't see any. We go on these trips to encourage the doctors and nurses already working at their own clinics. What type of medical work is being done? Well, there are a wide variety of, of services that our ministries provide from major medical centers with clinics and hospitals to Ministries that do community health and, and just go into the villages. Um, there's, there's just a, a wide variety of, of services. Our ministry is based on Christ's model of ministry. So even though there are a wide variety uh, of types of ministries, there are generally three activities which are present in uh, each of our ministries. So teaching... Uh, our directors teach community health principles and preventative health techniques. Uh, preaching. So we like to say that uh, our directors are evangelists who just happen to be doctors and nurses. And then healing, working in clinics and medical centers and doing community health. This is based on Matthew 9 verses 35 and 36 which says, Jesus went from village to village, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. We have a global presence. We have 37 ministries in 29 countries on five continents. And finally, the last slide we have is a map in our building here in Sioux Falls. There's a light uh, for everywhere in the world uh, we've ever had a ministry. The organization started in 1964, so you can see the, the impact that it's had over the years. Now, one of the things that we really value is partnerships with churches, not only because of our financial needs, but also because these partnerships keep us grounded in our vision and mission. We want people to see Jesus and this can only happen when what we're doing at the Luke Society is an extension of what happens at church. Life Church is one of our supporting churches, and I'd just like to take the opportunity to, to thank you for, for partnering with us in, uh, in this ministry. Thank you for 
your support, encouragement, and prayers. I have some brochures and other literature on a table in the back, and I'll be available uh, after the service to answer any uh, other questions people may have. With that, uh, Jack is going to be reading our scripture this morning. Reading from Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And Psalms 33, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his, in his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Good morning. When I got pregnant for the first time with Z, who's sitting over there and is now 15, 
uh, one of the main responses we got from people was saying, would be people saying, oh boy, just wait, your whole world is going to change. I think Nathan and I got a little sick of people saying that. Um, and uh, we believe them, of course, but also I'm not sure we totally knew what they meant because, of course, we had never had a kid before. Um, and then one of the ways that, that people wanted to know how our world was changing is they would ask me if I was having any cravings when I was pregnant. Um, and I didn't notice that I was, so I would say, what do you mean? And a lot of people would say, you know, like chocolate or chips. And I said, of course I crave chocolate and chips. That has nothing to do with being pregnant. Um, so no, I guess I'm not having any pregnancy cravings. Um, and then people would tell me about things, like apparently there are some women when they're pregnant who crave laundry detergent so much that they actually eat it. Um, and I, I remember asking my doctor about this, and she said there's some chemical in, in some laundry detergent that a pregnant body needs, and some women instinctively know this, so they eat it, which is not a good idea. If you're pregnant, don't eat laundry detergent. Um, you can get whatever you need other ways. Um, the only genuine pregnancy craving that I can say for sure that I had happened when I was about seven months pregnant. Nathan and I were watching TV, and an ad for Sam Adams beer came on. And I wanted it so bad, like my mouth literally started to water. Which is particularly funny because if you know me, you know I don't like beer at all. I don't have a moral objection to it. I just think it tastes really, really bad. And, um, and that continued for the next two months of my pregnancy. If I was in the grocery store and Sam Adams was a thing, I don't know, like I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, I would see it and I'd be like, wow, I wish I could have a beer or whatever. And of course I didn't drink any because I was pregnant. So you don't, you're not really supposed to drink much alcohol when you're pregnant. Uh, and I remember the day after Z was born, Nathan was standing in the hospital holding Z and he said, well, you can have a beer now. And I thought for a second, I realized with genuine disappointment that I no longer wanted one. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, that was a bummer. Um, I've never enjoyed a Sam Adams beer. So um, uh, OK, so obviously, as ridiculous as all of these uh, things are, they point to the fact that um, when you're pregnant, you're quickly entering into a whole new future, a whole new world. And your, your body is literally changing to adjust to that new future. And it's leaving the future you had had before, and it's moving into a new future. And that's really what both of our texts are about today. Um, at first glance, they might not seem to have much in common, um, but actually they do. In both of them, God promises to make a new world. And in both of them, the one who believes that promise is the one who is called righteous. So God promises to make a whole new world. The one who believes him is righteous. So let's think about each of these texts in turn. We'll start with Genesis. In Genesis, God promises a world in which Abram has a son. So Abram, Abram is somewhere between about 75 and 85 years old at this point. He has never had a son of his own. And God is coming along and saying, there's going to be a world in which you have a son. But quite a bit of time has passed since God first made this promise to Abram. And a lot of exciting things have happened. If you want to read Genesis 12 through uh, 14, you'll see that Abram has encounters in, with royalty and he uh, fights some big battles and wins and he has some narrow escapes and that sort of thing. It's all very exciting. Um, but none of it really matters if that key promise that he'll have a son doesn't come true. So at in our chapter, God comes to Abram again, 
and said and to talk to him and basically repeats his promise. I'm going to be your shield, your protector. I'm going to give you a great reward. He's alluding to these promises that he's made. And Abraham, of course, realizes that. And Abraham's response is actually pretty cynical. What he says is, in modern parlance, yeah, about that, I don't actually think it's going to happen. Uh, I'm an old man. My wife is an old woman. Um, so we have to deal with the real world, God. And in the real world, I don't have a son. I'm not going to have a son. So I've made this other guy my heir, Eliezer. He's one of my servants. He's, uh, he's trustworthy. He's a good guy. He's going to be my heir. Because I know you keep saying that this future is going to happen, but I have to plan for the real future that's coming. So I've made plans for this future, not that future. God has promised Abram a future in which he and Sarai have a son. But Abraham doesn't really believe him. God has promised one future. Abram's planning for a different one. And God's response, I think, is really encouraging, hopefully, to all of us. It's very, very gentle. Um, God says, okay, Abraham, like, I get it. This is hard for you to believe. Um, but nonetheless, I'm right and you're wrong. Um, you are going to have a son. And come outside, come outside with me. And they go outside and he says, look up at the stars. And remember that Abram lived about 4,000 years ago before there was any electricity. And he was a nomad, so he didn't even live near cities or anything. And he looked up and he saw the stars. I, I'm not, I don't know exactly what that would have looked like 4,000 years ago without any you know, electric lights on the whole earth. But he saw a lot of stars. And God gently says, this is how many your descendants will be. Eliezer is not going to be your heir. A son of your own body will be your heir. And by looking up at the stars, God isn't just saying you're going to have a lot of descendants. He's saying, where do you think those stars came from? Who do you think put them there? I can make that out of nothing. Don't you think I can give you a son if I want to? So he's not just pointing to the number of descendants. He's, God is pointing to the power that will make those descendants come into existence. He's pointing to himself. Um, that this son that he has promised is going to be kind of a ex nihilo, an out-of-nothing creation like the stars were. Because as far as Abram and Sarah are concerned, their reproductive systems are dead. <laughs> um, there's nothing there for, for God to work with. It is essentially a creation out of nothing. It is God's work to make this son happen. And we're told that Abraham looks, Abram, Abraham's name hasn't changed in uh, chapter 15 yet, so sorry. His name is Abram, but I occasionally accidentally call him Abraham. But he's the same guy. Um, he says, says he looks up at the stars, and we're told that Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that was Abram's response. He said, okay, I believe you. And God said, that's, that's all I'm looking for. That's what I need. Um, so that's Genesis. Okay, let's move on and look at, look at Psalm 33, which interestingly enough is addressed to the righteous. So at the end of Genesis 15, our Genesis 15 passage, we discover that Abram is now one of the righteous ones. Now Psalm 33 is addressed to the righteous. So if you're righteous, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to be? That's what Psalm 33 is about. 
So we're told right away that the righteous are to sing a new song to the Lord. And this seems to fit perfectly because the righteous are those people who believe that God is going to make a new world. So you sing a new song that is fit for the new world, that points to the new world that God is going to bring. And Psalm 33 tells us that this new world is one in which God's people are delivered from death and suffering by God's unfailing love. That's the new world. The new world is filled with God's unfailing love, and as a result, God's people are delivered from death and suffering. So the new world is a world in which we don't need horses or armies or all the other things that we try to create to protect ourselves and make ourselves safe. Um, Because we all want a world where we're protected from death and suffering, so we work really hard to try and create that world. But God in in Psalm 33 is saying, no, 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 I'm going to make that world. You're not going to make it. I'm going to make it. So we don't need all those things like armies and kings in the new world because God is the one who will be our king. God is the one who will protect us. So the righteous, Psalm 33 tells us, are the people who can envision this new world and live according to that vision. They can see the new world that God promises, and they can adjust their lives accordingly. They know and believe that the God who made all the stars out of nothing can make a new world. And uh, Psalm 33 points us to the stars, just like Genesis 15 does. They know and believe that the God who can contain and bottle up the seas can also contain death. And so knowing and believing this changes the way they live. Psalm 33 calls us first to worship. That's the first big change in how we live. Um, and, then, uh, and then the psalm tells us that the second big change means that we will uh, be those who wait on the Lord. So we will worship and we will wait. So that's Psalm, uh, psalm 33 and Genesis 15. So I want to now try and bring them together and think about what they tell us together. So in both of these texts, the righteous are those who believe that God will bring a future that he has promised. And they're people who are willing to live according to that belief. The emphasis here is that God will bring the future. No one else can bring it. Psalm 33 describes people who think they can keep themselves safe from death, who think they can create this new world. The king with his army, the warrior with his strength, the charioteer with his war horse. But all of these people are described in the psalm as foolish. They cannot bring the promised future, and their attempts to do so are not only silly, they're actually self-destructive. They move towards a different future. They want a future where they're safe from death, but really they just bring violence and destruction. So it's the opposite of the future they're going for. Their attempt to gain the promised future on their own terms is destructive of that future. Genesis, after, uh, after our chapter, Genesis 15, goes on to describe how Abram himself actually falls into this trap of thinking he can bring the future that God has promised. God has promised a future in which he has a son. So Abram and Sarai cook up a scheme where he can get a son using one of his slaves, Hagar. Um, and I'm not going to go into that story. You can read it yourself. But Abraham learns very clearly from that story that his attempts to bring God's future on his, Abram's own terms, not only doesn't work, but it is destructive towards the future that God has promised. Abram's attempt to bring the future himself, quite frankly, has created a conflict that rages to this day. 
turn on the news and you will see it. Um, so, so Abram tried to bring the future and he couldn't. And, and the whole Genesis uh, 12 through 22 chronicles how Abram slowly learns over time how to wait on the Lord. And so Psalm 33 in many ways is a summary of what Abram learns through his very long life with the Lord. How Abraham learns to wait on God. Psalm 33 closes with these words. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. So waiting is the work of the righteous, those who believe in God and God's future. Psalm 33 tells us that waiting is characterized by hope and made possible by love. Waiting is characterized by hope and made possible by love. So hope is a certainty, the certainty of the future that is revealed and promised by God. And it changes the way we live. Hope is not kind of a a desperate cross my fingers wishing. Hope is a certainty that what God says will happen, will happen. So going back to the pregnancy analogy, I, I remember very clearly the first time I took a pregnancy test. It was November 26, 2006. When I saw those two pink lines that said, your world is about to change. And even though Nathan and I didn't tell people this right away, our lives did start to change immediately. There were signs that new life had entered the picture, and our behavior started to change accordingly. Sometimes with excitement, sometimes reluctantly, but nonetheless, there it was. Um, from From the perspective of an outsider, honestly, everything looked the same, especially for the first few weeks. Um, But Nathan and I had inside information, and so we knew something other people didn't know. We knew that nothing was the same, and we were busy trying to adjust our mindset and our lifestyle to fit this new future that was coming our way. And so we spent about the the next eight months waiting for this baby to arrive in the outside world. But as we all know, waiting for a baby doesn't mean kind of this passive sitting around twiddling your thumbs. It means changing your attitude, changing your behavior, changing your lifestyle uh, so that you can welcome that new future. But this can be a really genuinely difficult thing to do. It requires us to kind of occupy a, a liminal space, which theologians sometimes call the already but not yet. I am a mother, but I don't have a baby in my arms yet. Um, I know from talking to adoptive parents that I think in many ways adoptive parents feel this even more strongly. You are the parent, but this child is not in your home yet. Um, So this is an odd kind of limbo space to be in. Most of us are usually pretty happy to get out of that space. Uh, We're happy when the baby arrives and that future kind of comes to full fruition. And yet this in-between space is the very space that God has always asked his people to occupy. It's a space in which God's promises are revealed and guaranteed, but have not yet fully entered our present reality. It's a space in which we live according to a future that isn't fully here yet. That's the space Abram is in in Genesis 15. It's the space the psalmist is in, in Psalm 33. And to be honest, it is a hard place to be. I think God knows that. That's why his response to Abram is quite gentle. 
Um, but the thing, and I think that tips us off to what makes this space possible. The thing that makes the work of waiting possible is love. Psalm 33 ends with this prayer. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. Love is what makes hope possible. I remember uh, when I was a kid, every year we went, uh, we lived in Kansas, and every year we went to Phoenix, Arizona, because my cousins lived there, and we would visit them. And my dad, before he became a pastor, was a long-haul trucker, so he hated the idea of stopping on any trip. So he was like, let's just drive through the night. Um, and we were all like, okay. We had one of those station wagons where all the seats folded down, and there were five of us in the back, and we would just roll around in the back for 24 hours. Um, and we all survived, so that's good. Um, but I remember, so, we, so my parents would take turns driving, and we would just drive 24 hours straight. Um, and I remember one night waking up in the middle of the night, and it was a huge thunderstorm. It was just pouring down rain, and lightning was flashing, and thunder was rolling. And I felt a little bit scared. You know, you're, on this, you're in this kind of tin can of a station wagon rocketing down a dark road in the middle of a thunderstorm. And I was like, oh, boy. Um, and, uh, and I remember looking up front, and I could see my dad sitting there driving. And he was very calm. He was just driving. He liked to eat lemon drop candy, so he would pop one in his mouth. And, uh, and I just felt this total sense of calm. And I was like, it's fine. We're going to get to Phoenix. Why? Because my dad loves us. And he's going to do what he said he would do. Uh, he had proved himself trustworthy by loving us over time. And so I just went right back to sleep um, and thoroughly enjoyed uh, the 12 hours that I wasn't conscious during that trip. Um, and I think um, it's because God loves us that we can put our hope in him, because it is a hard thing to do. It's hard to live according to a future that we don't really fully see yet. And of course, that begs the question, how do I know that God loves me? How do I know that God loves you? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus is how I know. We know that God loves us and will make good on his promises because God sent his son to become a human being, to be one of us, to spend his life teaching us and living with us and healing us and ultimately dying a death that he didn't deserve and then three days later being raised from the dead, never to die again. The tomb was empty and Jesus started showing up to the people he loved as a way of saying, see, I love you. You can trust me. I know it seemed like what I said was going to happen could never happen, but here I am. It's happening. God told Abram and the psalmist to look up at the stars to assure them that the new world was coming. But God has shown us something much, much greater than the stars. He has shown us Jesus. Jesus is the one who has conquered death. The very thing Psalm 33 promises, a world where we are delivered from death. Jesus was raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is like those two pink lines on a pregnancy test. Jesus' resurrection is a pregnancy test. It says, new life is here. It's coming. You better get ready for a whole new world. So, you know, what does this mean for us in our day-to-day -day life? Well, I think it means lots and lots of things. There's tons of application here and, and worth thinking about and talking about. But I just want to point out two that I think uh, might be helpful. 
The first one is that we should try to find ways to begin to conform to the coming world now. The future is breaking into our present. We know that. We have inside information. From the outside, it might look like the world just goes on as it always has. But we know something no other people don't know. And so we can begin to act in a new way. So the question we want to ask ourselves is, how can we now express our hope for a future world which is filled with God's unfailing love? We live in a world that will be filled with God's unfailing love. And of course, there's no single answer for this, but I think our church is trying to find ways to do this, uh, both big and small. Uh, John already announced that after, uh, after church day, there's a potluck, and we're going to hear from the folks who went to Ethiopia. Now, I have a little bit of an inside track on that, so I've already heard a lot of what happened in Ethiopia, and it is well worth you staying and listening to that, so please, please stay. Um, I think that the trip to Ethiopia is a is like a sneak peek, a preview of this coming world. Um, you're going to hear about how people from right here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, went halfway across the world to Ethiopia to meet people who speak a different language and are from a vastly different culture and eat really different food, but all together love God, trust God, want to teach other people about Jesus, and uh, they met together to be a to be a picture of the God, of, of the world that God is bringing. So that's worth finding out about. So stay, stay for lunch. Stay to hear about the Ethiopia trip um, because that's, it's like watching a, a two-minute movie pre trailer. Uh, this is what the movie is going to be about. This is what the new world is going to look like. Uh, another example from our church is, is a personal one for me. Um, I, I've seen in the announcements that the Gathering Well is looking for volunteers for this upcoming year of meetings. Gathering Well meets once a month. And I, and I am one of those volunteers and have been for a while. And I will admit a little, uh, maybe not shameful, I'll just admit that when I first started working at the Gathering Well, I was pretty scared. Um, I, I, kids are not, honestly, Sorry, kids. There's not a lot of kids in here. Kids are not my main thing. And, um, and uh, I, I was one of those people who, when I was pregnant, was like, I know I'll love my kids, but will I like them? Um, the answer is yes, I like them very much. Um, and I love them. But it was a genuine question for me. Um, but, uh, and, and then, of course, kids who come from difficult backgrounds, you know, that, that's, I don't know how to respond in those situations. I don't know how to be. Uh, but I remember uh, I started out uh, volunteering with the food. I was like, well, that seems pretty safe. I'll just do that. And, uh, but that whole year, I was like, I feel like God wants me to, to experience more than this. I didn't think God wants me to do more than this. I thought God wants me to experience more than this. And so I, I was genuinely scared about this. I talked to Nathan about it a lot. And I was like, I think God wants me to hang out with the kids I don't really want to, but I'm going to do it anyway because I think something really exciting might happen. Uh, and boy, was that true. I'm so happy that I listened to God and obeyed him. I don't always, so please don't take this as a do what I do type of thing. But uh, the Gathering Well is a place where I do see God's new world uh, once a month, uh, where people act out of love. And they act to include everyone. And so no one is left out. And, um, and new life starts to happen. 
um, in ways that are powerful and redemptive and joyful and fun and all that. And so uh, every month when I go to Gathering Well, even if I'm super tired and kind of don't want to go, um, once I get there, I'm like, oh, yeah, I like this. And at the end of the evening, I'm like, oh, that was amazing. And some little kid gave me a hug or some little kid... Um, told me I don't draw very well, or some little kid gave me their art project, and it's just, you know, a wonderful thing. So I'm just going to put in a plug for the gathering well, but I think there, we can always ask ourselves, how today, God, can I participate in your new world? It might be something super small. It might be something kind of big. I don't know, um, but always being on the lookout to see God's new world. And then the other application that I just want to mention is that I think both of these texts encourage us to imagine the new world that God has promised. I think these texts are meant to fire up what I like to call our theological imaginations. The Bible invites us to imagine the new world. The Bible gives us little pictures of it, little snippets of it, and then we're supposed to get excited about that and imagine what that's going to be like. Um, think about something that you in your life you've looked forward to, and especially if it's the first time you've done it, you feel excited about it. You imagine what it will be like. You, you try and fit your mind into that place. These texts are asking us to imagine the new world. Uh, maybe I've told this story before, but when Eden was about two years old, she um, desperately wanted to have a baby cheetah. The cheetahs were her favorite animals in the zoo. And uh, I remember going to the zoo, and, and she wanted to go into the, the cheetah cage. And I was like, oh, you can't go in there. Um, and she would be like, why? And I said, well, sweetie, they'll kill you and eat you. Um, so I said, no, you can't go in there. And she said, and then she said, when Jesus comes back, I'm going to have a baby cheetah. And I was like, oh, that's adorable. And I was like, oh, wait, that's super profound. Because when Jesus comes back, death won't be a thing anymore. So she gets to have a baby cheetah. I'm like, I want a baby cheetah. Uh, maybe I want a, a blue whale. I don't know. What do I want? Um, she was imagining a world in which death did not exist. Because we had told her that when Jesus comes back, there's not going to be any more death. So she was like, okay, baby cheetah, new world. That's when I get my baby cheetah. And she's totally right. Uh, I assume I will see her with a baby cheetah that grows up into a big cheetah uh, in the new heavens and the new earth, and that will be amazing. So we are called to be people with a great imagination. Um, I think this is one of the reasons why uh, Christian artists are so important, um, because they can see the world as it really is right now, and they can see the world as it really will be. So they can tell the whole truth instead of just part of it. Um, and parts of the truth are always good, but the whole truth is amazing and beautiful. So I think uh, Christians should encourage um, imaginative thinking, imaginative work, uh, creative ways of entering into the world. Um, I think Christian artists um, can lead the way in that in helping us imagine the world that God has told us is for sure coming. Um, and two-year-olds who want a baby cheetah can help us imagine that too. Um, we all can take part in that imagining. It's not just for some of us. But I do think uh, that those who have a special talent or gifting for art uh, in all its forms can help, can help lead the way in that. So 1 Corinthians 13 says, now abide faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So Genesis 15 and Psalm 33 tell us 
that the righteous are those who have faith that God will keep his promises, who live according to the hope of the coming new world and who are filled and sustained by the love of God in Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for promising us a new world. Thank you for um, coming back to life from the dead so that we know that that world is for real and that we can trust you when you say you're bringing it. I pray that you would come soon. I pray the last prayer of the Bible, uh, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Help us to be ready for you when you come. Help us to be eager to tell others about you so that they can be ready as well. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.